Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesselin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. We're here today with Andrew Brown, managing partner of Brown and Hutchinson of Rochester, New York. Andrew, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Andrew is also the vice chancellor of the New York State Board of Regents. Yes, I am. You were select, elected vice chancellor in 2016. 2016, that's correct. I've been on the Board of Regents since 2012. Tell us a little bit, Andrew, about uh, the Board of Regents. Board of Regents oversees what's known as the University of the State of New York, which is essentially every institution within the State of New York that provides learning or education from uh, P-12 through post-secondary uh, also including all libraries, cultural institutions, museums, um, public broadcasting. Uh, it includes private universities and colleges throughout the state. Uh, it really, again, includes everything that is an institution of learning in the state of New York. And what we do is we provide policy. We set the policy for all of those institutions throughout the state. The policy that you set covers, uh, for example, uh, K through 12 school systems it does. in New York State, but it also uh, you also oversee the universities and colleges throughout the state. Correct. So then those were obviously two separate things, two separate sets of policies. Yes, and and, and, and it's interesting, uh, Dave, that you mention that because uh, I, I I don't think that many people understand that and realize that. I think a lot of people think that what we do is oversee elementary and secondary schools. Uh, because that's what you hear in public space, and that's what people are talking about. So people will often come up to me and they'll ask me questions having to do with uh, some issue of the day in elementary or secondary schools. But our reach is far bigger than that. Uh, when we have meetings, we deal, that's just one part of our agenda. And it just so happens to be the part that most people hear about in, in their daily lives. But we're, our role is much bigger than that. And I think another misperception is that when it comes to colleges and universities, that your role is with respect to the state university system. But again, it's, it's actually much broader than that. It is. It, 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 it really is much broader than that. It encompasses private colleges and universities. It, it encompasses trade schools, um, proprietary schools. Uh, it is – our reach really is, again, encompassing anything educational. Anything that provides knowledge to other people comes under our reach. And it is a multi-billion dollar industry uh, that we oversee uh, in excess of $80 billion a year. Uh, it's massive. And we're fortunate to have thousands of people at our disposal to assist us. They are men and women who make up the employment of the state education system or the state education department. Uh, and we get a lot done, uh, all for the benefit of the citizens of New York. And, and Andrew, you're the vice chancellor, uh, which makes you the the second uh, highest state official when it comes to state education. Correct. And uh, tell us, uh, with respect to the vice chancellor uh, position, what does that require of you? Uh, the the board of regents is made up of 17 people, and the leadership consists of the chancellor and the vi and the vice chancellor. I just happen to be the vice chancellor. And regents are elected through a joint session of the state legislature, through the Senate and the Assembly. And with respect to 
regent leadership, that is decided upon by the regents themselves. So I was elected to the Board of Regents by the state legislature in a joint session. I was elected vice chancellor by my fellow regents, and along with the chancellor at the same time. And we, and we provide the direction, uh, oversight, and leadership of the Board of Regents in shaping policy for the state of New York. I want to ask you a question about an issue that's been of some controversy, not only in New York State, but across the country, uh, related to the standardized testing that's in our, our uh, public schools. Um, we had something that was called the Common Core uh, that New York uh, had a few years ago, and then there was an outcry uh, against it, uh, and now New York's system has has changed a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the the progression that we've made and and what the reasons were for it. Yeah, uh, Dave, you mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned assessments and testing, and you mentioned Common Core. Uh, One of the things that I struggled with, especially about two years ago when there was considerable public debate, was the relevance of the different aspects of reform. Uh, since 2010, there's been education reform taking place throughout the state, and there are different components of it. Common, Common Core was just one part of it. Assessments was a different part. The relevance in that is many people refer to Common Core as if it encompassed all of it, and it didn't. It really was just one part. Common Core really just speaks to the standards that we want kids to learn by. And what happens is, to make it more simple, what the easiest thing to do is think about where we want kids to be at the conclusion of 12th grade. We want them to have a sufficient base of knowledge to continue on with formal education through college or to enter the workforce. If you can't do either, then you're in a world of an unfortunate predicament. And if you don't come from a family of means, you have no no safety net, then it's a long road of not being able to take advantage of life's opportunities. What we do is we look at where kids need to be upon graduation, and then we work backwards. So if we know where kids need to be at 12th grade, then we can determine where they need to be at the conclusion of 11th, 10th, 9th, and so on, all the way down to kindergarten. And that's what Common Core is. It sets the standards. Assessments is basically just testing, and a lot of the outcry that we've heard in the past couple of years was around testing. And some people have decided to have their kids opt out and not sit for tests. That is a concern that I have. Uh, I'm troubled by that. We want kids in in classrooms taking tests. But we leave that to parents. We we believe that it's a choice. And I certainly, my personal belief is that any testing that we're doing should serve to the benefit of teachers to help them with their lesson lesson plans or to the benefit of kids so that they know what they're learning or not learning and how they can better change their learning or or their study habits to get what they need to get to be able to be where they need to be upon graduation from high school. How can we uh, determine whether students are on track, the track that you've suggested that they need to be to upon graduation, if, if we're not doing assessments through testing along the way? See, I don't think we can. I don't think we can. Somehow, we've all taken lots of tests. Uh, Every person that I know of has taken lots of tests. Uh, You can't even get a driver's license without taking a test. We take tests all the time. Uh, So the idea of of kids not taking tests is just, 
is just ludicrous. Uh, it's a matter of how much testing is necessary. I think we want as little testing as possible to do what we need to do to get the benefits out of testing. But by doing testing, then we're able to measure the success of teachers in delivering lesson plans, and we're also able to measure the success of students. Are they proficient in the various subjects? Are they getting what we want them to get, to be ready to graduate ultimately from 12th grade and go on to what comes next? And that's what, what it's really about, because I look at my role as a regent. I'm not in the business of preparing kids for tests. I'm in the business of preparing citizens for life. Looked at that way, it's a much bigger task. It's a much bigger, important mission, which it really is why I'm in education to begin with. If it was just a matter of preparing kids for tests, I wouldn't want any part of it. Well, what kind of programs do we have uh, in place uh, that, that you've been and the Board of Regents has been involved in promoting that would help prepare these young people for life? What we do is we have, and to, to be prepared for life and to be prepared for what comes next is really a matter of having a combination of what we refer to as soft skills, which often don't get taught in, in classrooms and often get overlooked, but they're relevant. And anybody who has found success in life knows those soft skills can often uh, mean much more so than book knowledge. Uh, but you need a substantive base of knowledge along with those soft skills. And again, you need a certain amount to be prepared to go on and succeed in college, and we have certain ways of measuring that. So we know who is likely to be successful in college and who is not. And we know how many uh, kids are graduating that are not prepared, which we refer to as something called ready and readiness. And to my opinion, in my, in my opinion, readiness is even more important than some of the other uh, data that we collect, such as graduation rates. Uh, if you graduate, you find a, wa a way to graduate from high school, but you're not ready for what comes next, then you're in no better position than someone who doesn't get a diploma at all. So what we've done is we've done uh, a lot of uh, training, professional development of teachers so that they are steeped in the standards that they should be learning or should be teaching. Uh, we work with uh, um, test developers to make sure that the tests are properly aligned with the standards. And we make sure that teachers have the proper curricula to be able to deliver in classrooms day in, day out so that all of it begins to align, and that has to happen in order for teachers to do what they need to do, for us as state policymakers to be able to depend uh, and rely on the data that we get from the different districts across the state. Uh, so those are just a couple of things that we do, but we do a whole yeah, lot more. Yeah, you touched on something, and this was one another controversial issue um, with, the, with the testing that was done and the way it was done before is that the the, the testing was being used not only to assess the students, but to assess the teachers. And that caused uh, certainly some problems, I think, for the teachers. Um, and then there was this ancillary issue of now, are the teachers um, over-preparing students just to take this test because it's so crucial to the assessment that's being made of them and to their schools? Uh, so how do we address whether a teacher is actually uh, doing uh, a, a good job or a poor job uh, without having some sort of uh, assessment of that. Yeah, and that's, and, and, and that's a good question. And there's no one nice, super neat answer to give to that. Uh, so what we do is we look at a number of factors. We look at rating and evaluating teachers on a number of different variables. Uh, 
One thing that I do think is important is that teachers should not teach to the test, which is something that people have often uh, criticized some schools or school districts or teachers about. I don't think teachers should be teaching to the test. Again, there's a bigger mission. We're in the business of preparing kids for life. That's what we should be doing. If we get too hung up on simply teaching day in, day out so that kids can pass a test, then we have failed them. And shame on us. We're not giving them what they need. And teachers are not doing what they need to do to develop our, what, was, what, is, what is, was arguably our greatest resource, our kids sitting in uh, elementary and secondary schools. I think that we have to be able to measure if teachers are, are good teachers. But I think we have to be very careful of, uh, about thinking that somehow students that are doing the best always have the best teachers in front of them because that's not always the case. I've seen some of the very best teachers I've seen and that would match up with good teachers anywhere in some of the worst of schools. And arguably, if I had my druthers, I would take the best of teachers and put them all in the worst of schools because then you're going to get it. You're going to be getting the real value of what, what these teachers bring to their classroom and their abilities. Sometimes you have uh, schools doing well, students are doing well, and people give the credit to the teacher. That's, that's misguided thinking. In many situations, the kids are doing well despite the teachers. So you can take kids in certain districts, especially wealthier districts, that can go home each day that have two parents mostly, or at least have one parent in the home that can be a second teacher. If you have two parents, you got two additional teachers. You have a lot of kids in the most underperforming districts, which also happen to be the poorest districts and the poorest urban areas largely, who don't have the benefit of another teacher at home. That's unfortunate. So that's just one reason why it's essential that we have, especially in those schools, we have highly qualified and competent teachers. And, and we want good teachers everywhere, but the fact is in some of those districts that are most underperforming, we need the best of the best. One of the most important things we can do for our students is to provide uh, a safe environment for learning so that, uh, you know, as you indicated, not everybody has the same home life. Uh, not every student has the same home life. Some have, some are disadvantaged. But at least in the schools, we can provide everyone with an opportunity for learning in a safe environment. One of the issues that's coming up, not just in New York, but nationally, is how do we ensure that our students when they go to school are safe and uh, we've heard about the tragedies that involve uh, gun violence what's the, uh, the the philosophy in New York for safety and we're talking about sometimes arming teachers what's the philosophy in New York with respect to uh, protection of its students yeah, we spend a lot of time talking about that, and with, with, with each tragic event around the country, uh, I find that the conversation begins all over again, uh, and rightly so. Uh, I believe that kids should have the expectation that schools are going to be safe places, and parents should believe that. Uh, right now, uh, in the city of Rochester, tragically, uh, a student went to school uh, just last week, uh, and got off the school bus and somehow walked away in a different direction as opposed to inside the school. Uh, that was uh, the end of last week. He was found uh, dead in a river 
uh, yesterday. How old? Uh, How old he was he? 14, a uh, seventh grader. Uh, and the whole issue of school safety uh, arose again. Uh, we have to provide safe environments for the benefit of kids learning and for the benefit of teachers. Uh, schools are, are, are a place of, of learning and development uh, and enrichment. Uh, the last thing we want to do is have kids uh, coming to school and being fearful. You can't learn in that kind of environment. No one can. So we're prepared to do all that we can to make schools safe. Where are we in New York with respect to having police officers in school or having uh, teachers with guns in school? I think teacher. I think arming teachers with guns would would be a huge mistake, and I hope that never comes to pass in New York State. Uh, I hope it never comes to pass anywhere. Um, teachers are equipped to teach. Their certifications are as educators. Uh, there are other people, law enforcement, uh, who are sometimes positioned at schools, who can carry a weapon. They're trained to carry a weapon and know how to shoot a weapon, and more importantly, know when not to fire a weapon. Uh, teachers don't know that. Uh, I'm fearful that you could have even more harm by having more guns in schools, which would be the case if you're equipping teachers with guns to be in schools. I, I just see that as a, as a ludicrous idea. That's a remedy that I hope uh, uh, people wake up uh, to realize is not the answer. We've heard a lot of discussion about um, having uh, uh, greater private schools in New York, charter schools that would take some of the funding that already goes to our, pu our public schools. Um, if there were, if there's charter schools in New York, which there are, uh, those also come under the uh, parameters of the Board of Regents as well. In your experience, what are you seeing as far as the success of charter schools uh, in New York and how they compare to what's going on in the public schools? Some charter schools have been successful, some have not. Uh, the answer is not simply to send every kid to a charter school. Uh, we have actually closed many charter schools over the last couple of years, and we look at charter schools much more critically uh, today than we did in the past. Uh, school choice is, is a matter that we leave to parents uh, and children. Um, some kids do better in one environment than another. Uh, if, if your child does well in traditional public schools, then great. I want to see more thriving traditional public schools, but I also respect the right of parents to choose uh, and to make a choice between a private school uh, or uh, a charter school or a traditional public school. Uh, but not all charter schools are the answer. Not all of them are succeeding. Some of them are doing worse than the neighborhood public schools. One of the concerns that I have around this debate is the possibility of taking funds away from public schools, traditional public schools, and giving those funds to charter schools if it works to the detriment of the public schools. The last thing we want to do is be weakening public schools at a time when we should be finding ways to strengthen them. And one of the concerns I have is, in addition to money, sometimes in areas where you have the most underperformance of students in the most underperforming schools, you have parents looking for something different because they know the schools are failing, and they want another opportunity for their kids. So they send them to charter schools. If that means that the kid is somehow getting something better to help the child and, uh, uh, through his educational years, uh, then great. But if somehow we're, it means 
leaving the public schools worse off, then that's not something that we bargained for. That's not an outcome that any of us hoped. And if we end up with that, then we would have a situation that doesn't benefit anyone in the long run. You said you've had to shut some schools down that have been underperforming. Uh, what do you see as the, the recipe for success uh, in schools that are uh, flourishing? Well, that's a tough one because uh, sometimes people say the problem is poverty. Uh, and the, the, the concern that I have there is if, you're, if we're not careful, that can be viewed as another way of saying poor people can't learn. And that would be a disservice to all people who, other than the wealthiest. Uh, everyone can learn. Kids come into this world with equal abilities to learn. Um, if you have uh, uh, situations where uh, um, kids are given the right environment, uh, the right schoolhouses, the right resources, the right teachers and administrators, and the most important aspect is as a parent or a parent, a, 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 a parent figure. If you look at the schools where that have the most, uh, the highest performing students, you also find parent the most engaged parents, and just to the and exactly to the contrary. If you look at the schools that have the, the greatest proportion of underperforming students, you found you find parent the, the least parental involvement and engagement. So that's a crucial factor. And again, as I mentioned earlier, if if you have a parent that a kid can go home to, and if that parent can serve as a second teacher then that kid is hugely, has a huge advantage over the kid who can't go home to that. So what we really need is a combination of things. We need good teachers without question. We need uh, adequate resources without question. Uh, we need sensible boards in place. But we also need parents that are engaged because there is never going to be a better teacher for any kid other than the parent of that kid or some other parental figure in that kid's life. Uh, and that can make all the difference in the world. Andrew, you're a, uh, an attorney, a well-respected attorney uh, from Rochester, uh, the managing partner of your firm at Brown & Hutchinson, uh, yet you've devoted much of your uh, professional career to public service and to education. Tell us a little bit about why education is so important to you. I'm a product of public school. I grew up in Kingston, New York. I'm a product of public school. I grew up poor and black. Uh, and for me, education was the answer. Uh, if you grow up a student of color without, and if you don't come from a, a family of means, there's no safety net. So the only way for you to take advantage of life's opportunities is through education. That, was all, that has always been the case. That's more the case today than ever. So I feel a personal obligation to younger people of this state, especially those of color, um, because I understand the significance of education. And with an education, you have the ability to take advantage of life's opportunities. If you don't, then there may be opportunities sitting on the end of your nose that you won't know it's there. And with an education, if the opportunities aren't presented to you, then you have the ability to go out and make your own opportunities. So it's hugely significant. And education is sometimes something that I view as, as the only form of true wealth in the sense that you can't lose it. It's yours forever. Everything else that we deem to be part of our, our, our wealth bucket, if you will, are temporary. But wealth, uh, or rather uh, education and experiences are yours forever. And education can open doors. 
So to the extent that I can play a significant part or a part in advancing education and the importance of education to the benefit of those, especially those who are most needy in this state, I'm going to do it. Well, Andrew, as, as you, uh, I think, so eloquently put it, education and knowledge is something that uh, cannot be taken away unlike wealth and other uh, material items once those are provided. We thank you, certainly, for the education that you've provided to us uh, here today and your experiences. We have a segment here at Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie, where we ask you to share an artistic performance that you feel has means something to you. Do you have one? Wow, an artistic performance. Well, uh, one thing you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned uh, books within that category. Um, I'm a big reader. Um, um, I, I, I love to read. Uh, one book that I would mention... It would be hard for us to have the vice chancellor of the Board of Regents say, I really don't like to read. <laughs> it would, it would, like, it would. I like to watch it would. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I say that anytime I, I, do, I do a similar uh, interview. Um, one book I read uh, recently is uh, Warmth of Other Sons, which is a book written by Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, it was written... In the last few years, I don't remember exactly when it was written, but I read it in the past year. It's a book about the Great Migration, blacks moving north uh, from the south. And what, what a, lot, a lot of people don't know is, is they think of the, the Great Migration as a much shorter span of time. It actually encompasses from around 1915 into the, 19, into the early 70s. So it's a longer period of time. And the book uh, it traces the lives of three different individuals who were in the South, uh, who moved to the North, one moves to the Midwest, and one moves, moves West. And it talks about their lives. And, and the whole book is essentially an illustration of how blacks have shaped America as we know it today. It's a phenomenally great book. It's a book that I highly recommend everyone read. Um, it can serve as a history book. It is nonfiction, but it reads like fiction. Uh, it's a phenomenal book. It's a it's a it's a really a, a rather lengthy book, uh, but it's well worth it. The warmth of other suns. Warmth of other suns, and the whole idea of warmth of other suns. And warmth of other suns, I believe, was a poem by uh, it may have been Langston Hughes. Um, and some people might know the name of that, uh, and that's where the book's title comes comes from. And the whole idea is blacks um, having um, the willingness, uh, even the audacity, if you will, at the time to leave where they were in the South and head off in pursuit of a better life and greater opportunities for themselves and for their, for their families. Uh, and they took on great hardships. And the story illustrates the hardships of slavery and then uh, the, the era of Jim Crow, uh, which was what a lot of people don't understand, even worse than the days of formal slavery. Uh, and, uh, and then it comes right up to the current day. It's a, it's, a, it's a great book. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you. That's Andrew Brown with us here on the Miranda Warnings. Thank you very much, Andrew. Dave, it was my pleasure. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't. <laughs>